Yeah, just to ahead. add to that as a yeah. therapist and somebody whose life sounded like a bad country song <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> I think it's important to say my emotional wounds are like physical wounds right. and you have to work on healing them. And you can keep running on an ankle that's kind of sore, but when you have a broken leg, you don't want to do more damage. So sometimes you got to ask for professional help. You got to seek help from support from other people. I'm just trying to figure out where you are and knowing that, okay, my life feels like a complete whirlwind right now and things feel crazy. And I'm sure right now nothing feels comfortable because you're world has been flipped upside down. Figure out how do you get enough support so that you are taking care of yourself and then heal all those wounds and emotional things that you're going through. While at the same time, you can keep pressing forward as long as your ankle's only kind of sore and it's not broken. That was Amy Marin, clinical social worker, therapist, and best-selling author, talking about how to move beyond obstacles and self-doubt to make the pivot you need in your career and life now. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. This session, Get Unstuck and Tackle Transitions with Courage, features Amy Marin moderating an engaging panel of pioneers who will discuss how to think about your choices, trust your instincts, and know when to stay the course and when to pivot. Let's get started so you can meet our panelists. So in 2013, I wrote an article that went viral, like crazy viral. 50 million people read it in a really short amount of time. And before I knew it, I was getting phone calls from people all over the world. MTV in Finland called, CNN in Mexico, and Fox News. And they all wanted to know, tell us more about mental strength. Because my article, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, was being read by so many people. And so in the midst of this viral superstorm, I get a call from a literary agent. And she says, you should write a book. I was a therapist. I thought, I don't know if I can write a book. First of all, I don't even know how to write a book. Second of all, I don't even know if any words will come out of my mouth or I don't know if anybody would read what I have to say. That was my first problem. My second problem was I had a secret and I wasn't sure I wanted to tell it. See, as I was talking about mental strength, everybody assumed you're a therapist. You've mastered all of these 13 things on your list. How wonderful. Tell us how you became so mentally strong. But my secret was I actually struggled with all 13 of those things. In fact, I didn't write the article ever intending to publish it. It was a letter to myself during one of the darkest moments of my life when I needed mental strength the most. I'd become a therapist. And when I was about 22, shortly into my career, my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. It's the first major loss I'd ever had in my life. And suddenly, I was really invested in figuring out what made people mentally strong, not just from my professional standpoint, but from a personal one. I'd seen people come into my therapy office who had gone through hardship maybe 20 years ago, and they felt like they were stuck, like they couldn't get through, that they could never move on, they could never be happy again. But then I saw other people who went through hard times and they became stronger because of it. So I started studying them. I wanted to know what makes some people stronger than others. And pretty early on, I realized it wasn't always about their good habits. Sometimes it was about their bad habits. If they just didn't do certain things, people could move forward and become much stronger than others. But there were a few bad habits that if people held on to them, no matter how many good habits they had, they stayed stuck. So as I studied them, I practiced, okay, just don't do these certain things. And I'm glad that I did. 
Because on the three-year anniversary of the day that my mother died, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And I found myself a 26-year-old widow and I didn't have my mom. And I'm a therapist. I'm supposed to help other people with their problems. I thought, what do I do? I'm in the midst of despair. I'm in no shape to help anyone. But fortunately, by then, I'd learned a few things. And so I worked as hard as I could to say, how do I not do these certain things? I knew that our tendency when we're going through hard times is to escape discomfort. We want to run away from those tough feelings. But the only way to get through them is you have to get through them. You have to let yourself feel bad. And grief is the process by which we heal. And I really wanted to heal my broken heart. So in order to do that, I had to embrace being uncomfortable. I had to deal with all of my sadness and anger and hurt. But I'm glad that I did because a few years later, I found love again and I got remarried. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. Bought a new house, got a new job. And I thought, this is my fresh start in life. But almost as quickly as I started that new chapter, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I thought, this isn't fair. He'd become a really close parental figure in my life. And I thought, I can't lose somebody else. I've grieved for so long. I can't spend one more minute of my life grieving. And I dug in my heels as if I could make it stop. But fortunately, I realized, okay, hosting my own pity party was one of those things that was going to keep me stuck. If my father-in-law had a couple of months left on the planet, the last thing I wanted to do was sit around and waste it. So I sat down and I wrote a letter of all the things mentally strong people don't do. Number one on the list is that they don't feel sorry for themselves because that's what I needed at that moment. So I spent the next few days just reading over that list as much as I could. And I found it to be really helpful. I thought, okay, no matter what you're going through, just don't do these 13 things and you'll be okay. And I thought, if this is helpful to me, maybe it would help somebody else. So that was when I published it online. 600 words and I stepped away from my computer thinking... Maybe a couple people will find it helpful. I never imagined that 50 million people would read that article. But then here I was with all these news stations calling and asking me, great, tell us all about it. How did you study these people? What made you decide to share how to be mentally strong? How did you become so mentally strong in your own life? And there's an interview of me on Forbes. They did a video interview of me. What nobody knew was my father-in-law had passed away three days before then. So they asked me, how did you do this? And I said, I'm a therapist. I just know these things. (laughs) And thought, I can never tell this to anybody. I'll lose my credibility as a therapist if I start telling people, actually, (laughs) I struggle with all of these things. But here I was on the phone with a literary agent and I didn't even know what on earth a literary agent did, to be honest. And she keeps telling me, I think you should really write a book. But I kept thinking, I don't think I can do that. But in that moment, I said to her, I have a secret, but I don't think I want to share it with the world. I'm a therapist and I listen to people's problems. I don't share my own, but here's the story. And she and I talked about it. And I was at this crossroads of, do I write the book and put my story out there? Do I try to do something different or do I just keep being a therapist and pretend that this phone call never happened? That was close. (laughs) And I realized really quickly that I was experiencing the exact same things that so many of the people in my therapy office experienced when they felt stuck. It was affecting the way that I thought, the way that I felt, and the way I behaved. So when it comes to my thinking, I was filled with self-doubt. I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I don't think I can write a book. I don't think anybody's going to read my book. But one of the things I had learned, and the research supports this, when you experience self-doubt, don't fight it, embrace it. See, because sometimes we tend to think, if I'm experiencing self-doubt, if I don't know if I should do this, it must be my intuition. My gut's telling me I have no business doing this. 
But the truth is when they've studied people with self-doubt, they actually do better than people who are overly confident. Because when you have a little bit of self-doubt, it means you're thinking, I got to try really hard. If you walk into a situation like, I'm going to crush this, no problem. You're not going to work hard at it at all. So when you experience self-doubt, just acknowledge, yeah, I have some doubt. It's normal and that's okay. Don't waste a single second fighting it or thinking I shouldn't be thinking this way. When it came to the emotional part, I was terrified. I was scared. But if I'd learned anything else about our emotional side, it's that our emotions affect the way that we think and the way that we behave. And when it comes to fear, it tends to talk us out of things. It tends to exaggerate how big of a risk that we're taking. But when you think about it, our level of fear has nothing to do with the actual level of risk that you face. Let's take public speaking, for example. Most of us hate public speaking because it feels scary. But then you think about it, how risky is it to get up here and speak? Other than the fact that I almost tripped over that chair, there's very little chance of injury, (laughs) except you shouldn't do this in high heels. But for the most part, the biggest risk you took was getting here today. Whether you got here by a plane, a train, or an automobile, your chances of getting injured or death were much higher than tripping over this chair. But it also affected the way that I behaved. My tendency was to avoid doing anything different. I just thought if I can just keep being a therapist, my life's not terrible, it's not awful, I could just keep doing that and then I don't have to put myself out there. But I also knew research says when we are at a crossroads, we're better off to take the risk and make the change. They did this study where they had people who were sort of on the fence about a big decision. Should I move or should I stay? Should I get a new job or should I stay in the one I have? Should I end this relationship or should I stay in it? So they had everybody flip a coin. All these people agreed to it. And then once they flipped the coin, they made their decision based on it. Heads, you make the change. Tails, you don't. So that's what they did. People who got heads said, great, I'll make this move. People who got tails said, I'll stay where I am. So then they followed up with the people two months later and said, let's figure out how happy you are. Well, statistically, the people who'd made the change were much happier than the people who stayed stuck. So then they said, let's follow up with them at the six-month mark. And that gap had gotten huge. People who made the change were much, much happier than the people who stayed the same. And that won't guarantee that every change you make is going to drastically improve your life. But if you don't make that change, one thing is true. You're probably not going to miraculously wake up and be happier with your life. So needless to say, I said, I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to write the book. And three books later and 37 languages later, I am glad that I did. (laughs) On that note, I'm going to introduce our other panelists who are going to come up and talk to us about how to get unstuck. Up first is Jackie Glenn, the founder and CEO of Glenn Diversity and HR Solutions. Maxie McCoy, the author of You're Not Lost. And Trish Terizo, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer at Hologic Inc. Maxie, my first question is for you. When we feel stuck, we Uh-oh. often <laughs> tend to feel lost. But you wrote a whole book on the topic. I did. <laughs> Looks like this. <laughs> Called you're, you're Not Lost. lost. I swear that you're not. So what's happening to us when we feel that way, when we tend to think that we're not just stuck, but we're completely lost? Yeah, there we have to go through a whole book on that. But there's so many things that are happening. I would love to see from all of you, who's feeling wildly stuck or lost right now in their own lives? Yeah, a good amount of you. You're in the right place. Amazing women. 
One of the things that was really interesting to me, Amy, as you asked that, first of all, the information that you were giving us before this is just so true to all of these feelings. When we're feeling lost, we want to just immediately run away. But when I was looking at what was going on, all of my life has been around building offline communities of women. I was hearing, I feel lost in all the situations. So I went looking like, what's going on? What are we telling women who are feeling this way? And it was a lot of go find your passion and follow your purpose, to which I said, bullshit, because if it was that easy, we'd be doing it already. And so what I got to is we're just not believing in ourselves enough to find the way to take the small steps that open the path up. Jackie, when it comes to mentors, can you tell us, I know you've mentored a lot of people. What role can mentors play in helping us figure out what kind of a transition to make or how to get unstuck? I think mentors can play a variety of roles. Mentor can be a listener. I think for most of us, I came out of corporate America and I had a series of mentors from starting with my mom, who was just my mom, but also my mentor. But mentors can be a sounding board. Mentor can be someone when you literally feel like you're going to like hurt someone at work or you can call someone and say, okay, tell me if I'm going crazy or is it me? Mentor can guide you and shape you and talk Mm -hmm. you off the ledge. And I think everyone should get a mentor. And I think that most of the time people ask me if I could be their mentors. And if I take another one on, I literally will not sleep. (laughs) Will you be my mentor? Yes. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) sleep. But I always tell people that sometimes you can use people as a mentor and they don't even know they're mentoring you. Mm. You don't have to formally Mm -hmm. ask them. You can just ask them a question. I get a lot of calls on people asking me. And I think for mentors out there, they have to be honest because a lot of times there's a lot of article out there that speak to a mentor or advocate. And I can do both. When I'm in corporate America, and I was in corporate America, I used to advocate a lot for women and especially women of color. Mm-hmm. I always had to do that. And I was advocating for a lot of them, but I would mentor everyone. And so I think that having a mentor is really a good way for you to sort of do a sanity check, to check to see if you're on the right direction. Mm-hmm. I have two daughters and I always say to them, you know, they don't listen to me, yeah. but I send them to my friend because they would listen to them. And then I have my friend's daughter come to them. And it's really just the way of just having someone who can just pressure check and talk to you and give you advice. And it's really important if you don't have a mentor to get one. I think that's wise advice when we're, our emotion goes up, our logic goes down, and sometimes checking in with a mentor can help raise some of that logic and even things out. And just reassure you that you're not crazy. Yes. <laughs> Trish, sometimes one of the things that keeps us from making a move is the fact that we think I haven't been in this job long enough. And so we're afraid to do something different because we think it'll look bad on a resume. You don't want to job hop. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I hear this a lot when talking with people. Somebody approaches them and they say, I've only been at my job for three years. What's it going to look like on my resume? Should I be concerned? (laughs) And I think I find that a lot of people handcuff themselves to a position worried about that, the optics on a CV and what that looks like. However, I think today, as we think about contemporary workforce, Mm -hmm. it's not like it used to be where you need to be loyal to a position for many, many years to be credible for another position. As a matter of fact, I think often when we're looking at 
candidates. We want to see that they have experience in multiple positions across maybe different industries and maybe different, you know, different companies, different industries. So I, you don't want to be somebody who's, who's in a position six months and, and then moving every three months because then that does look suspicious. Right. But I think in today's contemporary, again, workforce, it's very common to see two, three years in a position. And that, I think, is often applauded and seen as a credit rather than a debit. Good to know. It's yeah. a story you tell, right? Like It is. You can have those different experiences. And I think that sometimes we use the resume as like a, well... <laughs> I can't make the change. And you were saying that's hard because it's not going to look good on my resume. But we were talking about this actually earlier. It's just about the story you tell and having someone like a mentor who can help you with that red thread of what is the connection so that you can tell a better story of where it is that you want to go. Absolutely. Agreed. And Maxie, you know, sometimes we have an option of doing something or not. In my case, I could either write a book or not. But sometimes we feel stuck. So glad you did. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Sometimes we feel stuck because we don't know even what to do. We just there's a million options, and we feel overwhelmed. What's your advice for people who say, "I'm I don't even know where to go next, or I don't know what to do"? Yeah, it's really easy to ask that question when we're feeling lost and we're feeling stuck. When I was looking at like what is actually going on, when literally every woman, it didn't matter her education level, it didn't matter where she was at in her life or what city she was in, I was hearing, I feel lost and I feel stuck. And when I was looking at what was going on, it typically was two things. Either I've gotten exactly where I want to be and I effing hate it. (laughs) And if I hate it, and this is everything that I said that I want, then I don't know what I do want. And if I don't know what I do want, what do I want now? And if I don't know what I want now, what am I supposed to do? Right? Sound familiar? Or we did everything that everyone told us that we're supposed to do and we wake up and we're like, well, cool. I was living someone else's life, but this clearly wasn't mine. And I don't know what I want, so what I do now. So to answer your question of, it is when we are looking at the big picture and having to have the 20-point plan figured out, we're like, well, I'm not there and I want to be there, or I don't even know where there is, so what do I do? And so for me, when I was looking at the women who were doing this, the ones that I look up to are the ones that deeply believe in themselves. They don't know where it's all going. Also, if you ask any of them, and I would ask all of you this, no one was like, yeah, that's exactly where I'm going to get. And then they got there. It's Amy, similar to your story. Like you can never imagine where it is that you're going to get, but if you don't do something, you're never going to get there. And so the answer to all of this, and it's a question that I'm constantly asking myself because this book came out and then I felt effing lost. So been there. We can talk about that in a minute. And it really just is about coming back to what's the smallest thing I can do here. What is the smallest thing that I can do to get closer to something that energizes me, to something that inspires me closer to the future that maybe I can or can't see and then do that. So I want to piggyback a little bit on that because I just wrote a book and I think that if you saw my life, Lift As I Climb, an Immigrant Girl's Journey Through Corporate America. And if you saw my life when I started, I started as a nanny. I came to this country and I was a nanny. And as I listened to you talking about not knowing what you want to do, yesterday I was interviewing on Chronicle and she asked me how I went from a nanny to an executive. I knew One thing I knew for sure, I wasn't going to be a nanny for the rest of my Mm -hmm. life. And I think if you know that, if you know that you're in a position right now and that's not where you want, you're at a good place. Just make a move. 
And so I knew that there was a finite amount of time that I was going to be the nanny. Mm-hmm. And it really gave me a lot of coping skills and things that I learned that I parlay into moving through my corporate career. And so I think for all of us, if we think about if you're in a job, and I just left my corporate job after 20 years and talk about transition, I was reading an article getting ready for this and it says, People between the age of 50 and 70 have transitioned. And when they transition, they get lost. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have seen me and it's been 18 months. And one of the things that we do, we identify with our position and our title. And I really had to spend the 18 months like not saying I was the chief diversity officer because I'm not anymore. (laughs) And it was a while. It took me a while to say I'm a best-selling author. And really, and 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 I'm still working on it. So talk about transition. Another thing that I always do is I tell people when I was leaving corporate America and, you know, For some of us, we leave on our own. For some of us, we're asked to leave. For some of us, we're forced to leave. However you leave, if you leave, it really does, no matter how you leave, it really is a hard transition, even if you're leaving to go to another job. And so I tell people when I left, they said, so what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm leaving myself open for Mm -hmm. what the universe has for me. And at the time when I was saying it, I wasn't quite sure. It was (laughs) like bullshit, as you said, but... I did it. I left myself open. I decided to finish writing the book and things just start happening. And so leave yourself open for what the universe has for you. I'd like to add to that. So you knew what you didn't want. Right. I think often that's certainly an inspiration to find something else. I think one way to not get stuck is avoid it planfully to Mm -hmm. begin with. So even if you're in a position that you really like, you enjoy it thinking about what is your next thing or what's the possible, where do you just, you may not know what that thing is, but being naturally curious, what else can I do? Where else can I go? And always be entertaining. Maybe those phone calls that we get from a recruiter or those taps that we might get, we oftentimes say, no, thank you. I'm happy. Um, Things are okay right now. But even if you are, you should open the door and have the conversation because you just never know where that road might lead. So even if you're happy in your job, you get a call from a recruiter and think you should entertain it. Is that what we're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. The curiosity thing is so important. We get so caught up in being like the thought leader and the expert and da da da. And it's like, what happened to just like being shitty at things again and (laughs) learning and being willing to learn because if you're willing to learn new opportunities, like both of you are saying, can find you. And I'm telling myself to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And Jackie, a question for you. So obviously you talk a lot about resilience. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that, that you talk about is you know how hardship can make us more resilient. But obviously we don't want to subject ourselves to pain just to toughen Mm -hmm. ourselves up. Most of us don't anyway, just for the sake of it. So how can we develop resilience in a more positive way, in a healthy way, even if we aren't going through tough times? What can we do to be proactive about it? One of my gems in the book is resilience, and I love it. It's one of my favorite because I believe that sometimes we throw in the towel too quickly. Mm. And so I have two millennials, so I can talk a little bit about them. I've really realized when I think about coming to this country at 19 by myself to a little town in Kansas called Shawnee Mission, where there was no Black people, Mm. and I'm not making that up. There was none. 
and really sort of kind of putting myself out there and having to sort of kind of decrease my accent to understand what my employer was saying to me and take care of these two little kids on my own at 19. Just think about your 19-year-old. And so I felt like that was my first thrust into being resilient. The only people that I thought that looked like me was the male guy, the UPS and the landscaper, and they were my friends. I couldn't wait for them to come to the door. And so resilience is really, I like to describe it in succinctly by saying, it's to stay uncomfortable until you become comfortable. And I don't mean if you're being abused or I don't mean that. I mean that in the book, I talk about situations that happened to me at work where I knew that I could just say, peace out, I'm gone, deuces, whatever they say these days. But I wanted to stay in it. And I'll use the merger. No merger is easy. Everybody is trying to jockey for their jobs and it's hard. And being in such a high level position, everybody came to me and said, so what are you going to do? And how are you feeling? I developed a tagline, even though on the days when I wasn't feeling well, I am a woman of faith. So I always say to people, I'm blessed and highly favored. I even said it to Michael Dell. Every time they asked me how I was feeling, and it was really a mechanism that I put in place to not go negative. And so anything you have to do when you're building up your resilient muscles, figure something out. And so my tagline became blessed and highly favored. Even when on the days when I wasn't feeling blessed and highly favored, I was blessed and highly favored. (laughs) And on the days when it was really, really tough, I would say blessed and highly. And I put an emphasis on the H, which as a Jamaican, sometimes <laughs> we don't pronounce our H's. I would put an emphasis on the H because I felt that it really would help me to just stay into that mode of not going yeah. to a pity party place. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't pity party when you're building your resilience muscle, because then there are days when I would get on the phone with some of my board of directors and you should have one. And they shouldn't necessarily always be at your job because some people don't keep their mouth shut. And if I get out, especially if you have a visible job. So I had board of directors external and I'll just call them and I would say, I need five minutes to have a meltdown. And the board of directors that I had, if I went 5.1 second, they're like, stop, we're done. (laughs) And that was really good for me. So resilience is something that in this day and age, I feel like, It's a muscle that you have to build. Life, as we would like to know, is change constantly. Mm -hmm. And change is good, even though no one likes change, if I ask for it. But it is good. And I look at myself 18 months into post-corporate, and I would never have write this story the way it turned out. So resilience is the muscle that I love to use the most. Thank you. So I think that's a really important point about building resilience and how that's working for you. And from Trish, I'd love to know, what are a couple of things in your career that you felt like were critical to your success? Yeah, I think just some of the basics, right? When I think about, I think about three things. I think probably for me, the strengths were just a good work ethic, like a lot of people have. And then there's leverage and then there's keeping the doors open. And on that work ethic, I think it's just a lot of hard work, treating people well and knowing when to let other people lead. On leverage, I think one of the things that I find that people 
leave on the table is, is being able to identify what is leverage, being able to identify it and then being brave enough to use it. And then lastly, that curiosity, keeping all doors open, opening doors, being brave enough to entertain conversations. Again, like we said before, even when you think things are great. Uh, one thing I've heard a lot of people say, and I encourage them to think a little bit differently, is there's an assumption that if you're going to move your career from one place to another, particular with vertical mobility, I want to grow my career, I want to get to the next step. I've heard so many people say, However, I've got a good quality of life right now. Mm-hmm. My commute is good. <laughs> My boss is great. I'm compensated well. I don't want to disrupt that. There's almost an assumption that if you go to the next step, you have to give that up. And I think often is the case for many people who've gone, they do go to the next step and they realize they actually improved some of those or all of those things. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the last thing is don't assume what you have is the best. The next thing could be a lot better. I think that's a wonderful point. Sometimes we think, well, things are predictable now. And if you do something different, then it's not as predictable. But there's nothing saying that the next step you take can't be quite glorious if you take that step. We hate the unknown. Right. (laughs) We hate it. We hate it. So speaking of the unknown, there's so much talk about setting goals and having a New Year's resolution. Of course, those conversations are starting to come up. What are you going to do next year? What's your goal for next year? But Maxie, you have a controversial, somewhat controversial view of goal setting. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I really want to use the F word, but we're streaming. (laughs) (laughs) F goals. Like I just was someone who was so hyper invested in goal setting and that being the option or solution to everything that we were feeling around stuck or lost. Well, just go figure out the big picture and figure out what the goals were. But raise your hand if you've ever met a really big goal and then hated it. Yeah. It's just unfulfilled and getting really attached. The point of this is getting really attached to the outcome without actually looking at what are the things that are going to drive you forward. And life isn't about the end game and the end goal. I mean, I went through this with this book. I've been a writer my whole life. And then this kind of message and working with women offline really found me. And I was like, okay, this is the thing that actually I need to give birth to. And then I did it. And I was on a book tour and I was like, wow, I literally can't tell anyone what I'm feeling right now, which is that I've been so obsessed with the outcome of this book that I actually have no idea what's next. And obsessing over what is next, what is next, what is next, and feeling really lost because of it. And I had a really amazing dear friend who sat me down and was like, I'm going to read you your own book to yourself, woman. (laughs) And the piece that she really wanted me to harp on, which is something that anybody can do if A, you don't know what the big goal is, or B, you don't know how to get there is to just take two seconds to turn around and look at this body of work and all of these experiences that you've already done. I mean, all the literature around reflection shows that this is one of the most underutilized tools around just looking back, taking time, figuring out what worked, what didn't work on a daily basis, on a global basis, and then making decisions based on that instead of constantly looking forward because it'll get us into a lot of these kind of obsessed with outcomes, obsessed with what's next, and then feeling like there's a huge separation between where we are and where that is and not knowing how to fill in the gap, which is that those stuck and those lost feelings. So reflection, people, reflection. 
Yeah, I think there's so much pressure to be driven all the time and to always have goals, to always be working on something. And what do you say if you say to somebody, yeah, I don't really know what's next and the look on their face of like, how can you not know? Right. Um, Sometimes, you know, you don't don't always have to be... You don't always have to be doing. Sometimes you can just practice being and being in the moment, being yeah. yourself. And there's yeah. strength in that too. That's leaving yourself open for the universe. Yeah, yes. right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yep. You can like feel it in your body yeah. when you say it too. It's like, just oh, yourself open. just chill out. There's a study actually that's kind of ironic. So they looked at whether people have an internal or an external locus of control. People who have an internal locus of control think my success is 100% dependent upon me. If people who have an external locus of control who think the universe will give me whatever it is that it's going to give me and they sort of don't put in much effort. (laughs) Well, then some of us fall in between that too, where we think I can do my best, but I can't control whether somebody hires me, but I can do well in the interview. Well, of course, they looked at the people who had an extreme internal locus of control. These are the perfectionists, the people that think if I just work hard enough, then great things will happen to me. Ironically, these people are so goal-driven, they have their head down and they missed out on all the opportunities that were right around them. Mm -hmm. And so the people who had a more balanced sense of control actually tend to be more successful. Because if you have your head down working on a goal so hard, you don't have time to look up and see the things that are right there in front of you. And you won't dare take a a sharp left-hand turn when it comes your way because you think, no, this is my goal. I have to stay on the path. So to recognize that while you can control how hard you work, you can't necessarily control all the stuff around you and to be more open to yeah opportunities that come your way. Well, Amy, to your point, like magic will show up if you look up. And right. I mean, I think we were talking about this yeah. earlier, how many opportunities, like I'm in the middle of one. I wrote this book just recently. I've been running my own business for five years. I just took a full-time job running all of the offline communities at a company called The Riveter, which is a modern union of working women. And getting to dictate how women come together offline was not looking for the job, had no intention of taking a full-time job that wasn't my business. And then I just kept doing what I knew lit me up, which is around figuring out how to consistently bring women together in person so we can deepen community with each other. And this thing shows up and it's like, Yes, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're doing this and wouldn't have picked it even a year ago, which right. we were talking a lot about. Right. right. Keep the door open. Keep the door open. Yeah. So in a minute, we're going to open it up to questions. So be thinking of any questions Your that you have. Questions. But before we do, I have one last question for Jackie. Specifically, when it comes to the tech industry and it's fast paced and everybody's moving. How, in what ways can the tech industry help build resilience or help us deal with self-doubt? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question because um, the tech industry, especially for women and underrepresented minority, is tough Mm -hmm. because when you look up, there's not a lot of us. It's getting better, but we have a long way to go. And so the tech industry can build on women's resilience by encouraging them to do things like this. And I will say one thing that we were really, really good at at EMC, because of course I was the chief diversity officer, was really making sure that we get a group of women to go to all of these all over the world. And so we set it up because we found that when the women come back from these things, they were pumped. It's as if they just put an IV in and they soaked up all the goodness that was in the conference center and took it back to work with them. And we survey a lot of them and they were like, if I do nothing else, I want to do this. And so they can do that. They can also, and I said this, and if anyone have heard me spoke before, I said it's a lot. 
they have to let their audio match their video. They talk a lot about wanting to have more women and more people of color. And then you look around and I'm the only one or two sitting there and it goes on and on and on. We want more. And I think that it's easier to say you want it. But when time comes for you to actually, as my mom would say, put your money where your mouth is, Mm -hmm. they're not doing that. So if I had to peg one thing, if you say you're going to do something, you need to stop talking and do it. And so I said that yesterday and I'm saying it today. I'm so, I've been in this diversity space in the STEM field for so long that I am so sick of the talking and, oh, we want to have more underrepresented minority, want to have more women. And I look up and there's just one lowly woman up there or maybe two. And that the two is in the progressive companies and we're still talking about it. And I feel that the millennials and the Gen Zs and those people that are coming up, they're just sick of it. And we boomers really have to do what we say we're going to do. So when I go into company now and consult, I am at a point in my life where I can choose who I'm going to work with. Mm -hmm. And if I get a whiff that they're just doing this for a box checking exercise, I'm not doing it. Because I just feel like, why waste your money? And so I, I just... And so I went into a company once and I did my own spiel about mirroring your customer in your marketplace and how you have to show up and mirror them. And (laughs) the guy called me back and he said, oh, we would like you to come in and do a two-hour training. I said, for what? (laughs) Because I feel like, what am I training on? You haven't even figured out your issues yet. And so I think there is this big rush now to do DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Everywhere you turn, people do it. It's the nice buzzword. But if you're not going to do it and be genuine about it and you're not going to do it right, or you're going to just use it as a PR thing to say, okay, we have Jackie Glenn in here and she's a strategist and she's going to be doing it. You're not using my name like that. That will be a no, no. And so I just, I know I keep saying it, but I just need to know since we have so many strong women in here, we're resilient. You operate in integrity, all in my book. You come to work with empathy. You need to go back and when you're leadership and they can be women too, because one of the things that I've found that sometimes we shoot ourselves in our feet as women. So we have a woman who is a boss and we're trying to push diversity and have you come out and they're like bucking in and they are women helping women, whatever happened to that. And I think sometimes we sabotage our own progress as women. And so I really think you should go back to work and you should say, for all of this thing that you're talking about and say you want to do, let's stop talking and start doing. I would like to just add one thing to what Jackie's saying and answer, you know, further go on the question. What can the tech industry do, right? And certainly not just an exercise of checking the box. And I think we all agree. It's really challenging, right? I've been in STEM my entire life. And we were talking just before we started. Yeah, we know a lot of the same people. But we also know a lot of the same numbers. Right. In that since 1991, there's been a decline in women filling STEM positions by 7%. And let's just put a pin in that and say for STEM, it's science, technology, engineering, and math. Because I never want people that are in the audience to feel like everybody know what's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. So, so there's a 7% decline, yet more people are taking degrees in it. So we've got this big leaky pipe. And then we try to figure out why is it leaking? That's a whole another hour of conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think what we can ask companies to do things, but we can do things as well. <laughs> 
And I think many of us are managers someplace. We work someplace. And for those of us that do work in any one of those fields, it's our obligation to to really drive, right? That Each of us make up a company. We can't all just point to a corporate entity and say, the company's got to do it. And I think all of us have an obligation to really pay attention to this. And we own driving diversity in our teams and across wherever it is we work. Good point. And that brings up another good question. I think so many women that I know, they tend to be so busy, so frazzled. They don't even have to have time to to think about doing anything different. Mm. They feel like they're stretched so thin. And one of the things that a lot of the women I work with struggle with is saying no. They tend to be a people pleaser. They always say yes. And sometimes they lose sight of their values. So this question is for anybody. What's your best advice for somebody who says, I'm a people pleaser and I struggle with saying no. And how do I get out of that so that I can live my best life and create something different for myself so I don't feel stuck? Well, I'm going to go. Go for it. Mainly because all of my girlfriends tell me that I am so good at saying no, but I wasn't always that way. I have found that it really is. It's a muscle that gets strengthened. Say no in the really small moments. Let yourself say no in ways that don't have a lot of repercussions so that when you're saying no in the bigger ways, that muscle is strengthened to that place. But you have to start somewhere. And starting with the big no's is really difficult. And the other thing that's helped me with saying no is remembering we think we're going to say no. And we did the work. We said no. I'm going to feel good. They're going to feel good because I said no and I held my boundary. But what people don't tell you is that when you tell someone no, they get pissed. They don't want you to say no to them. And so just remembering that even when you do say no, when there is a negative repercussion, that does not mean that you said or did the wrong thing. You just have to uphold the fact that that was your no. And even I, when I say no to certain things, I don't necessarily feel good, but I know that it was the no that had to be done. I always like to say no is a word to use it. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, as a new entrepreneur, for those of you who are entrepreneur in the audience, when I left corporate, I had no intention of being an entrepreneur, but I left myself open to the universe. And that's what happened when you leave yourself open. And it's really hard for me to say no when someone called me to do a job. But I think in this day and age and just word, this world, the U.S. that we live in now, I always say to people, if you don't say something that means you're green. Silence is green. Mm. And so when I go into companies, not the fact that I'm a tall black woman with an accent and people know that I've been doing this work for a while, I really feel like I come in and I have to really stand for something. And so saying no sometimes to people who ask me to do things that I feel like it's not good for the company and it's going to just take the company money. And I'm not quite sure why you would want me to come in and start with a training because in my experience, going into companies and doing training, I get into a room, they see me, they took one vigil of me and everybody hands is crossed because here comes the tall black woman talking about diversity and she Mm. just want to bring her family and her friends in here. (laughs) And it just never go over well or she's trying to have more women and we're doing good. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And this is what I get. And so I am not really of the mindset that you just go in and you do what the customer asks you to do. So say no is something that I struggle with, but I feel like my principle won't let me do otherwise, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Someone thought it was a good idea for the corporate sponsor to come be the wet blanket and stuff. I think you probably have time for one more question of the panel and then we're going to open it up to the audience. Okay. Maybe in the minute we have left, maybe we can just say, what is your one sentence piece of advice for women who get stuck? If you had to sum it all up, we'll go down the line. I guess I'm starting. (laughs) I'm going to go back to something I already said. What is the absolute smallest thing that I can do here? If you do that and you do that over and over again, you're going to build up a deep sense of self-belief. The path will open while you step, but it's not going to open by sitting in your chair. What I would say, and I'm going to preface it and you can come see me, it's far better to be respected than to be liked. Now, it sounds a little cocky, But I always would want people to say, and I always say this over the years for those of you who know me, I would rather you say she's really great at her job, but Mm. boy, she's just so itchy because I'll call you out. So I don't know where I got this tagline, but a woman is so, and a lot, not all of us, but I have two daughters and sometimes we're so busy worrying about people liking us. And I work with the sales teams for years and these sales guys, I loved working with them because they didn't care about that. They just want to make sure you were making your numbers. And so they loved me because I came in and I had to do what I had to do. And so I built up this tagline that is far better to be respected than to be like. And I think that it's for someone in here who is too busy worrying about, Mm -hmm. is she going to like me? Is she going to think I'm this? Or And we'll waste like all our life worrying about people liking us when you really just want to perfect your craft and be excellent at what you do. And the like part will come after. Yeah, and I'll go back to something earlier. It's just, I would say that always it's the looking up, right? Mm -hmm. No matter how good you think it is now, no matter how comfortable, no matter, you know, it's the avoid getting stuck. Mm -hmm. Always be looking up, always be picking up the phone, always be having that conversation because while it's as great as it is today, it could be even better tomorrow. And I would say argue the opposite. When you're afraid of something, you'll come for the 101 reasons why you shouldn't do it. Sit down and write down all of the reasons why you should, and it'll help balance out those emotions. I love that. Great advice. So we're going to open up for questions. Hi, thank you all for being here to answer these questions. I think my question is that when you find yourself either having gotten to that place and not liking where you are, or you've done everything you need to and you're just stuck, What are some questions that we can use, like your favorite questions to ask folks or to ask yourself when you're in that place of not knowing what to do next? I can answer this. I mean, three that I'm always suggesting people ask. This book has worksheets at every chapter because I fully believe that when you ask yourself the right questions, you will find your own answers. Buzzkill, I don't know what they are, but ask yourself. You can timestamp it. You can say five years. You can say one year. What are the things that have inspired me most in the last year? What are the things that have energized me? What are the things that have drained me? What are the things that people have sought my advice on? Because what you'll start to do when you just take time to reflect and go through these questions that answers are going to bubble up that you didn't have time in the crazy, Amy, that you were talking about of just constantly strapped, having no time. We don't sit and do this. But when we do, the answers are all there. And then it's just a matter of testing testing what you want to do a little bit of action around to get you closer to those feelings. Yeah. Hi, thank you guys so much for being here. I've been in my organization for 15 years and I've moved up through the ranks and, but I also have two little kids Mm -hmm. and I 
feel stuck because I've got sticky people in my house and they're physically sticky. But the reason why mothers in particular have a hard time putting themselves first is because there's a evolutionary imperative for children to try and stop you from putting yourself first because they <laughs> want you to put them first. It's a survival instinct. But it limits my choices, or at least I feel like it is. And so I feel like the stuck, the inability for me to look up and think about, well, it's been 15 years. Should I keep doing this? Should I do something else? I just think, I just got to survive. I got a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. So, and everyone says, this is just a really hard time. It will get easier. So like, do I just hang out here <laughs> until they get less sticky? Or do we like, how do you kind of, I think there's a very particular kind of stuckness for, yeah, for moms. I would say certainly the children are a demand and should always be the focus. But again, I would inspire you, go looking, because yes, you're comfortable in your position. You've got it working out. You can pick up the kids. The logistics are down, but you might find another opportunity out there leveraging the skills and the experience that you've gotten through these 15 years, wherever you are, that's leverage. And use that leverage to find another position that might pay you 50% more and you can hire an au pair to come and take care of your kids and help with the logistics. And use that to move forward. Hey, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. I was really drawn to this session by actually the second half of the title, The Transition with Excitement. In the past year, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. I have gone through a divorce. I've moved and I'm currently interviewing for some new jobs. So I am not stuck. I'm actually in a spiral. And (laughs) while I logically absolutely think I'm working towards the right direction, emotionally, there's just those times that I can't get my heart to really agree with it. I was wondering, how do you guys help get the emotional side to match up with the logic? I think you're doing the right thing by coming to this conference. And I'll just, no, you really are. When I first, and my mom got diagnosed with cancer before, and she lived for quite a long time. And so I want to encourage you that you will have her around, but you have to get out and you have to do things like this. And I think that when you feel stuck and you feel like you just want to stay home in your pajamas and watch one of the housewives rerun, don't do it. Orange County is my favorite. Orange County, yeah, don't do it. Don't. I remember when I first left and I was just in a slump. I picked myself up and came to opening night two years ago. And as I walked in through the door, the woman that runs it, Lori, she came over and gave me a big hug and said, I'm so glad you came out. And I just saw so much women and that gave me so much energy. And I think that what you have to do is find someone who's going to help you get out and get out more and do more things. And as you do that, you'll find that your energy picked up and you'll bump into something, even just volunteer and giving back. When I'm feeling down, I volunteer. I go because tends to open your eyes to what's going on in your life. And you find that, oh my God, it's not really as bad as I've made it out to be. So find somewhere to volunteer, even if it's an hour, and you will see how your move will pick up. Thank you. Just to add to that as a therapist and somebody whose life sounded like a bad country song (laughs) as well. (laughs) 
I think it's important to say my emotional wounds are like physical wounds and you have to work on healing them. And you can keep running on an ankle that's kind of sore, but when you have a broken leg, you don't want to do more damage. So sometimes you got to ask for professional help. You got to seek help from support from other people and just trying to figure out where you are and knowing that, okay, my life feels like a complete whirlwind right now and things feel crazy. And I'm sure right now nothing feels comfortable because your world has been flipped upside down. Figure out how do you get enough support so that you are taking care of yourself and then heal all those wounds and emotional things that you're going through. While at the same time, you can keep pressing forward as long as your ankle's only kind of sore and it's not broken. Mm -hmm. Seems like we have time for one more question. We have one more person. Okay. Thanks. And I think this is going to piggyback on what Jackie just said. And that is when you're trying to get unstuck, you're looking for inspiration, right? And I'm just curious to know what forms of inspiration do you go to? Is it a book? Is it a blog? Obviously, this conference for me is why I'm here is to gain inspiration here. But just curious, what do you use to get inspired? Yeah. Yeah. I have to say it's my closest friends. I stay close with them, you know, in times of things that might be pulling you in different directions. And you feel like, how do I align my emotion with where everything else is going on right now? I draw energy from those closest around me and and I get inspired by what each of them are doing. And it kind of feeds the energy back into me. That helps me out. Also remember, there's a fine line on top of that. And why I love the close friend, that's what I would say too, because there's a fine line between seeking inspiration and finding comparison and feeling like shit. So figuring out what that is for you in times of feeling lost and feeling stuck, your closest friends or books by people who aren't where you want to be, but are doing something really cool in a different industry. I feel like when you're really at the lows of of lost and stuck, those are some good different avenues to go because then it it keeps your blinders on a little bit so that you don't end up in the comparison game and just feeling like, well, I can never be that. So, And I just have one last tip. And maybe this might be odd, but as Brene Brown said, I always like to speak my truth when I left. And because I was just traveling worldwide and just busy. And then I left and I'm home, like eating bonbons. I started going on at 530 because I'm a woman of faith. And remember, I tell people I'm blessed in Isle of Favor. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to call myself out. So I started joining at 545. I know it's crazy. Don't side eye me. In the morning. morning. It's only for 15 minutes, but I cannot tell you what it did for my spirit Mm -hmm. and my psyche. And the, the pastor and his wife, they're out of Tampa, Florida. I get on. I, I don't even get out of the bed. I just listen. And I've been doing it now for 18 months. And that's what feeds my soul. Nice. So, we'll end with yes. Jackie. Thank you. You just heard from Jackie Glenn, diversity and inclusion strategist, Maxie McCoy, the best-selling author of You're Not Lost, Trish Terizzo, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer at Hologic, and moderator Amy Marin, psychotherapist turned best-selling author of the Mentally Strong book series. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women. Mm-hmm.